0: Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1. I hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you uh, made your way into the sanctuary uh, this morning. So we work our way through that. And of course, today uh, we do continue our study of the book of Hebrews, which was written uh, to a house church of Jewish Christians. And it's my conviction that they resided in the city of Rome. Uh, After a good start in the Christian faith, uh, they began to struggle with the cost of commitment to Christ in light of Roman persecution, which included imprisonment, uh, torture, and martyrdom. Uh, These believers had come to a crisis of faith. Would they continue to go forward... In their faith regardless of the cost? Or would they retreat in unbelief and fear, unwilling to pay the price of following Christ? Returning to their old Judaism appeared to be a very uh, inviting and safer option for them. Hebrews was written to encourage these frightened believers, not to fall away from the living God, but to press forward in their faith by obeying what God had spoken through His Son. The motivation the writer offers is exalting the supremacy of Christ, emphasizing throughout the book all that we have to gain in Christ and the value of that far exceeds the cost of following Him. Now, last Sunday, we looked at the first three verses of the book, which give six proofs for the supremacy of Christ. He is the heir who will inherit all things in heaven and earth. He is the creator and the sustainer who simply by the word of His mouth... Created all that exists and holds all that together. He is the revealer of God, the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. He is the redeemer of man who made purification for sin, and He is the supreme ruler who is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this morning. Uh, we will discover in ch- from chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through chapter 2, verse 4, that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, to fully appreciate this section, it's important for you to understand the Jewish view of angels, which I've summarized for you in your notes. Uh, look there in your notes, it says that the Jews believed that angels were the highest beings next to God. Uh, They believed that they were God's instruments to bring His Word to man and to work out His will in the universe. And they especially venerated the angels because of their place in giving the law to the children of Israel. The Scripture emphasizes in uh, several passages, two of which I've given for you in your notes, that it was actually the angels that came and on behalf of God and gave the law to Moses. So the, the, the uh, Jews venerated angels. They viewed them as the mediators between God and man. Bridging that gulf between God and man. Uh, these Jewish believers needed to realize, as we saw last week in relationship to the prophets, that Jesus is superior because He's not just an instrument of God. He's what? God Himself. The very Son of God. Therefore, when God's Son speaks even more than angels mediating the law. He is worthy of our undivided attention, our undying affection, and our uncompromising allegiance. Another important observation to make about these verses is the writer's use of the Old Testament, and you see that in your notes as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, the writer creates a mosaic of seven Old Testament Scriptures to demonstrate to these Jewish Christians that Jesus is greater than the angels by describing Jesus as God's Son from His incarnation to His glory. And I've given you all seven of those Old Testament references for you in your notes that uh, you can check out yourself. But look with me now at four key truths from this section of Scripture. First, Jesus is superior to the angels Because Jesus has a more excellent name, worthy of the angels' worship. Look at chapter 1, and let's read verses 4 through 6. Having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited, notice, a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did He, referring to God the Father, ever say, Thou art my Son, Today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, I want to make two observations. First notice in verse 5, there he quotes from Psalm 2-7. That's the first Old Testament passage that he uses here. And he says, Thou art my Son, today I have what? Begotten thee. Now, what does that mean? You know, that can be somewhat confusing since we know Jesus is eternal and He had no beginning. Well, we're given the answer in Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 32 and 33. You might want to turn there. Uh, Keep your hand still there in Hebrews. We'll come right back to that. But in Acts 13... Uh, Psalm 2 7 is also quoted. And matter of fact, we're told in Acts 2 7 when and how that particular scripture was fulfilled. It reads this way And we preach to you, this is Paul, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus. As it it is written in the second psalm, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So when it refers to Christ being begotten, it's referring to what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we are told in Romans 1, 4, declared or proved Jesus to be the Son of God. Look also at the phrase in verse 6, where Jesus is called the firstborn. Again, does this mean that Jesus is a created being, as is taught by many of the cults today? Well, in the New Testament, you need to understand that the term firstborn, in most cases, doesn't mean the first individual born biologically. Uh, It is often used in the New Testament as a legal title, a legal title that indicates supremacy, that indicates headship or the rightful uh, owner. The thought is Jesus is superior to all other beings due to His unique relationship with God the Father as His Son being part of the Holy Trinity. He is superior because of those six proofs of supremacy we looked at last week in the great work of redemption that He has accomplished. And therefore, no one is more worthy to be worshiped than He is. That is why the angels worship Jesus and not the other way around. That's why we worship Jesus and not the other way around. You know, the first verse of the hymn, All Hail the uh, Power of Jesus' Name, sums up our first point well. It says all hell the power of Jesus name let angels what prostrate fall bring forth the royal diadem and crown him lord of all so Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a more excellent name and he is worthy of the angels worship look at the second reason Jesus is superior to angels because Jesus is the eternal sovereign, unchangeable God who created the angels to minister to Him. Jesus is the eternal, sovereign, unchangeable God who created the angels to minister to Him. Look at verses 7 through 12. And folks, if you ever needed a proof text concerning the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is God Himself, here it is, Verse 7, and of the angels, he said, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Notice before we move on, it says he, what, makes his angels. That word makes is another word for created. So, he's saying that he, Jesus, the very Son of God, he's the one who created the angels uh, as wind and his ministers. Uh, But verse 8, but of the Son, he says… This is what God the Father says concerning His Son. Thy throne, O what? God. This is God, again, speaking to His Son. And He, speaking to His Son, He says, Thy throne, Son, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. And thou, Lord, again, another reference to the fact that Jesus is God, Jehovah, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, what we saw last week, that He's the Creator, the Sustainer. And the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. And they will all become old as a garment, and as a mantle that thou wilt roll them up as a garment, they will also be changed. But thou art the same and thy years will not come to an end. Amen? You know, we could sum up these verses this way. Angels minister before the throne. They don't sit on it. Angels bow to the royal scepter. They do not hold it. Angels reside in heaven. They did not create it. And angels impact history, but they do not control it. Who does sit on the throne? God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who does hold the royal scepter? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who did create heaven and earth? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who does control all things? The Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let me ask you, who is superior, Christ or the angels? Christ. Very obvious. Look at the third reason Christ is superior to the angels. Jesus' destiny is to rule, while the angel's destiny is to serve his subjects. Jesus' destiny is to rule, to reign over this entire universe, while the angel's destiny is to serve his subjects. Look at the last two verses of Hebrews chapter 1. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all, referring to the angels, ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Notice, the angels served the saved, but they did not secure salvation. Only the one whose hands and feet were pierced for man's transgressions, who died and rose again, is worthy to sit on that majestic throne to rule and reign at the right hand of God the Father. He alone, Jesus, is worthy of our worship. Look at the fourth truth. Well, why is it important to realize that Jesus is superior to the angels? I mean, what difference does it make anyway? Well, here's the writer's application. Since the new revelation spoken through God's Son is superior to the old revelation, the law, the old covenant mediated by angels, we must anchor our lives to it and not drift from it. That's his application. Since Jesus is superior to the angels, and remember, the impact that this would have on these Jewish believers who venerated angels and the fact that they mediated the law to Moses and the children of Israel. Well, since that, the new revelation spoken through God's Son is superior to that old covenant, to the law mediated by angels, well, goodness, we better anchor our lives to it not drift from it. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For this reason. See, he's connecting what he's about to say with what has just been said about the superiority, the supremacy of Christ over the angels. He says for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And of course, this is going back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, what what have we heard? What God has spoken through His Son in these last days. So we must give closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, referring to the law that was given through, uh, through them to Moses and the children of Israel, if that word proved unalterable in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, referring to the apostles. God also bearing witness with them, the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Now, you can sum up these verses very simply. And here it is if these Jewish believers, prior to their conversion, prior to faith in Christ, if they took such great care to obey the law that was given through angels, how much more should they obey what God has spoken through His Son? That's the thrust of the passage. And if there were dire consequences for disobeying God's Word spoken through angels, how much more serious the consequences of neglecting what God has spoken through His Son. You know, there are two key words uh, in verse 1 that are both in the Greek text. Uh, One is Prosekin, which in the English Bibles is translated pay much closer attention to. That phrase is the translation of that first Greek word. The second important Greek word in this text is parrain, which is translated drift away from, to drift away from. Now, the interesting thing is that both of these terms were used as nautical terms. The first meaning to anchor a ship, to anchor a ship. And the second referred to a ship aimlessly drifting beyond safe harbor harbor, and headed for shipwreck because the pilot neglected to take into account the direction of the winds and the current because of the pilot's carelessness. See, you could actually translate this first verse this way, and you'd be very, very accurate. Therefore, we must the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we have been taught, Referring to what God has spoken through His Son. Lest the ship of life drift past the harbor and be wrecked. William Barclay, great Bible teacher, wrote this about these verses. Powerful statement. He says, there are few people who deliberately and in a moment turn their backs on God. There are many who day by day drift farther and farther away from Him. There are not many who in one moment of time commit some disastrous sin, but there are many who almost imperceptibly involve themselves in some situation and suddenly awake to find that they have ruined life for themselves and broken someone else's heart. We must be continually on the alert against the peril of drifting. Now, how do you begin drifting in your Christian walk, in your faith? where the answer is found in verse 3, in the word what? Neglect, which suggests a careless attitude, a lack of focus, a failure to give attention and obey God's Word. That's how you begin drifting, just simply a careless attitude when it comes to the things of God, a a lack of focus, uh, not giving attention to God's Word. Uh, being a hearer and not a doer, not applying, not appropriating. Now, I thought it would be good in the few minutes that I have in closing the message uh, to look at the peril of drifting as seen in Christ's messages to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. This is something that's meant a lot to me in my personal life. This is something that I often return to, to evaluate my life and where I am at in relationship to my walk with God. And often God has used this evaluating tool to help me catch myself as I was drifting and to get back on course and return to the Lord. And if you're familiar with Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there you have Christ's messages uh, to seven uh, different uh, churches. Uh, and in these messages, He'll give both, of, of course, commendation and condemnation. The interesting thing to notice is when you come to the last church, La- Laodicea, that we'll talk a little bit more about in a moment, where he gives us a scathing, as you know, condemnation of this church. Uh, I mean, he, he portrays himself, what, outside this church, trying to get back in. And they don't even realize. They, they're totally deceived, they're totally blinded to their terrible, pathetic spiritual condition. Well, this particular church is mentioned in the book of Colossians that was written. Uh, in the 50 A.D.s, late 50 A.D.s, Revelation was written in about 90, 91, 92 A.D. So think about that. In 40 years, a short span of 40 years, you had this church that went from being red-hot, passionate for the Lord Jesus Christ, to where Christ just condemned them. He's been pushed out, trying to get back in. Now, how did that happen? Well again, it didn't happen in a moment. It wasn't a deliberate and conscious choice that they initially made. They just slowly began to drift. And as they drifted, they got farther and farther away until they ended up in this condition. And look at how this happens. And you, and you see the progression with these seven churches. And we don't have time to go deeply into this, but I've given you the uh, references for all the churches. Uh, You can go deeper, and I would encourage you to do that. But what is the first step in drifting? And it's always the first step in drifting. Neglecting the priority of worship. That's it. It's always the first step. Neglecting the priority of worship. That Do you remember the message he gave to this church? He commended them for many things. He commended them for their faithful service to the Lord, that they were even willing to endure suffering for him. So he he just heaps on them wonderful words of commendation. This was probably the largest church in the New Testament, probably the most well-known church in the New Testament day. Their first three pastors, how would you like to have these guys as your pastor? Their first pastor was the Apostle Paul, and then Timothy, and then the Apostle John. That was their first three pastors. So you can imagine the teaching that they received. And they were grounded in the Word of God. Again, so he commends them for their service. He commends, but he says, I have one thing against you. You remember the phrase? He says, you have left your first love. The word left is an interesting word. It's aphymai in the Greek text. It's actually the word that was used in New Testament days when a man would give his wife a bill of divorcement. And basically what Jesus is saying, you've gotten so busy in life, even so busy in my work, that you've lost sight of me. See, he's talking about first, think about first love. Most of you can remember back then. And what are the characteristics? Man, that person has your attention, don't they? They have your focus. I mean, you're excited about the relationship. You're passionate. You want to get to know this person, understand this person, get close to this person. And what Jesus is saying is, You no longer have that passion. You've lost that excitement. I no longer have your focus as I once had. See, there's a serious hard problem here. To sum it up, this would be the best statement to sum it up. What had happened was they had gotten to the place where their Christianity was a routine to be endured, not a bad routine. I mean, they tithed, they gave, they were involved in service. They studied the Word of God. I mean, they were model citizens, appeared to be model church members. I mean, this church would have been elevated again as the greatest church in the New Testament era, but Jesus said, you have a serious heart problem. Your Christianity has just become a routine to endure and it's no longer a relationship to be enjoyed. You've lost that excitement. You've lost that passion. And folks, that is always the first step in drifting. The very very first step. And you need to ask yourself, are you passionate about worship? I mean all you got all you got to ask is, look at this service. Us singing a moment ago. Did that move you? Were you excited? Were you overwhelmed with adoration? With appreciation? Or were you just going through the routine of the service? Just singing. You might have liked the melody. But you weren't touched. You weren't moved. See, in true worship, there is passion. And it's rooted in truth, truth about who God is. But that truth should move us. It should move us deeply emotionally. It should move our wills. Again, as we talked about earlier, we give Him, yes, our undivided attention, but also our affection, our undying affection, and yes, allegiance, uncompromising allegiance in worship. So the first step is to neglect worship. What's the next step? And you see this in the Church of Smyrna. Fear of suffering for Jesus. That's always the second step in drifting away from Jesus. You first neglect worship. Everything may appear to be fine. You may appear to be that model church, but in reality, you, you no longer have that passion, that excitement, that intimacy, that close. And what happens is you begin to develop a fear of suffering. Now, how does this work? It's very, very simple. Think about this. Not complicated. You are willing to suffer only for that which you value. This is true of every one of us. You're only going to suffer for that which you value most. And what happens is when you neglect worship, other things begin to creep in. Other interests, other ambitions other relationships, and those things begin to divide your heart. Those things begin to be a priority. Those things begin to take first place. And then what happens? The fear of losing earthly treasure becomes greater than the value of gaining heavenly treasure. Because you've lost that focus on the beauty, the infinite worth. See, when you see him, you will be able to say with joy, with delight, not as an agony or as a burden. You'll be able to say with Paul, I've counted all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing him. Yes, I've counted everything lost and, and counted them but rubbish, garbage in comparison to the infinite value of my beautiful Lord. So, the first step in drifting is just to neglect worship. Second step, you'll begin to notice fear, a fear to stand for Jesus, a fear to witness. You'll begin to see anxiety creep into your life. Worry. You'll, You'll begin to grumble. You'll begin to complain in trial and adversity. Because you've lost that sight of Jesus. You've lost passion for Him. And then what's the next step we see it in the church of Pergamum? Compromising God's truth. You see the pattern? You neglect worship, elevating Jesus to that highest place, being excited about your relationship, passionate about your relationship, giving Him your undivided attention, your untying affection, uncompromising allegiance. You drift away from that, Oh, you're still here. You're going through the motions. But again, it's just more of a routine instead of a relationship to be enjoyed. Then the things of this earth, other interests that begin to creep in, divide your heart, become a a greater priority than Jesus in a very subtle way. And then you see fear creep in, this fear of suffering for Jesus. Because as He diminishes in value... You develop this fear. And this is exactly what was happening with the Hebrews, right? Is they were facing persecution. And when you fear suffering, think about it. What's the next step? You're going to compromise. You're going to compromise to avoid the suffering. If you're familiar with the, uh, his letter to Pergamum, he says, I have a few things against you because there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. I won't go into the teaching of Balaam, but here's a a summary statement. The teaching of Balaam is simply compromising compromising God's truth to avoid suffering and gain success in the world. That's it. It's just compromise, it's watering down God's truth. So you can more easily fit into the world system to avoid suffering, to avoid ridicule. And to gain success. To gain the applause of men. And that's what happens. It see the applause of men becomes more important than the applause of God. And you begin to compromise. You begin to water down the truth. And then what's the fourth step? You see it in the church of fire tyra. Moral failure. Compromise always leads to sin. Now it may not, I may not, I'm not talking about sexual sin. I'm just talking about. Once you begin to compromise, it's inevitable that at some point you're going to, begin, you're going to deliberately walk into disobedience. Uh, you're going to see a lack of quality about your Christian life, as we talked about earlier. Uh, in, instead of glorifying God, the issue is gratifying self. So you're going to see your life captured by selflessness, again, which is going to be exposed by things like anxiety, grumbling, and complaining. Again, that lack of quality, that lack of seeing faith produce authenticity in your life, in the routine and unexpected of life, because you've lost that closeness and intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what's the step five? You see it in the church of Sardis, the death, death to spiritual growth. Let me tell you, folks, when you're a Christian and you begin to drift, you neglect worship, you develop this fear of suffering, you compromise God's truth, water it down, and then you begin to engage in deliberate sin, you stop growing. Sin will stop spiritual growth. And what did he say to the church? He says, you have a name that lives, but you are dead. And then what's the next step? Step six in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is a church where he gives nothing but commendation. So I'm going to take a positive, and we can turn it to the opposite to see what the next step would be. He, he told them that they needed to hold fast to God's Word. So the, the step six would be a failure to hold fast to God's Word. See, when I begin to engage in deliberate sin, I don't want to be around God's Word. But it's amazing how even as believers, we can be comfortable coming to a Sunday school class every Sunday, coming to worship every Sunday, even getting involved in a Bible study. We can be comfortable learning God's truth, being a hearer, but never being a doer, and confusing that with spiritual growth, thinking because I know more, I'm growing. No. No. Growth comes by obedience, by being a doer of God's word, applying God's word. And then that brings us to the final step that we see in the church of Laodicea, which is what? Being lukewarm towards God, being apathetic, indifferent, complacent, and not knowing it. That's the key now. They were lukewarm but didn't even realize it. If you're familiar with the, his message, to him, he says, you think you are spiritually rich. You think with you, you, you can spiritually see, but in reality, you are blind spiritually. You're poor. And he makes a statement to them, you're neither cold nor hot. He says, I wish you were cold or hot. I'd, I'd prefer cold over what you are. So because, he says, you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. See, this is a church that literally made Jesus sick. The one thing that Jesus hates more than anything else is complacency and apathy. How can you approach the Lord Jesus Christ, who hung on Calvary's cross as payment for your sin, rose again to cancel out your sin debt, to impute all of his righteousness to you, to give you a right standing before God, to give you 24-7 access to God, and an eternal home in heaven, how can you possibly come to that Jesus and be complacent and apathetic and indifferent? Think what that does to God the Father. Do you think He's going to allow His Son to be dishonored that way? And no, that's where God brings chastisement. And that's going to be something we see as we go through this book of Hebrews. If you continue to drift, God is just not going to let that go. He's going to step in. He's going to bring discipline. He's going to bring chastisement to try to bring you back because He loves you. And He knows it's in that relationship, staying close to Jesus, that you'll be truly blessed. And so what's the remedy for drifting? And we'll close with this. You go back to the very first church, Ephesus, where they had neglected worship. They had left the first love. And at the end of that letter, there are three key words. You might just write them down on the bottom of your notes. Here it is. Remember, remember, repent, and return. Remember, who Jesus is and what He did for you. Get your eyes back on Him. Give Him your attention. Begin to lavish your affection on Him. Give Him your allegiance. Remember Him. Remember. See, again, let me tell you, I'll, I'll say, I, and I mean this very, very seriously. I don't believe any true believer that's been authentically converted Now, don't misunderstand me. We can drift. We can deliberately sin, all all that. We can experience God's discipline. I mean, we can get involved and struggle with strongholds, but I don't believe any believer on planet earth can focus on Jesus Christ long, who He is, what He did for you, without being moved. I mean, moved in your heart. Well, you begin to see that passion again reignite, and you come under conviction, and you see, oh, how foolish I've been to drift from my first love, and I need to run back to Him. And, of course, He'll be there, what? With open arms. So, you remember, you repent of your drifting, and then you just simply say, here I come, Jesus. And He'll embrace you because He loves you with an unconditional love. Because our God is good all of the time. And all of the time He's what? Good. And that's all He has for you is His goodness and His kindness. Would you bow with me in prayer? I think it would be appropriate just to allow a few moments of... uh, silence where you can reflect in your heart god is here jesus is here the son of god that has spoken god's word who loved you and gave himself for you have you drifted just be honest have you drifted can you see in that pattern that we can you see where you are can you say, do you, do you have to admit this morning, I've lost my passion for worship. Yes, my Christianity has just become a routine, not a relationship to enjoy. And yes, I see that fear of suffering, that anxiety, the grumbling, the complaining, and difficult circumstances. And sadly, yes, I have begun to water down, compromise God's truth to be able to fit in with others. And then sadly, there may be some here you've crossed the line and you're involved in deliberate sin. You've stopped growing. No one may know it. You're hiding it well. But you know you're not growing. And if a Christian's not growing, you can't blame the church that you're in. You can't blame your marriage partner. The issue is you. Or you sadly say, you know, I have become complacent. Well, I'm asking you right now remember. Repent and return.